Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Sonia Bass. Sonia is the lead physio at the Pure Practice Limited, a physiotherapy practice based in Bath, Somerset. Uh, Sonia, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us. No, no, thank you very much for having me. It's our pleasure, Sonia. Um, the reason we're here, of course, is to discuss your take on leadership and really bring that into focus. And considering that this generation of leaders in all capacities, I think it's fair to say, is going through one of the greatest challenges of our time in the shape of COVID-19, I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask you just how much the pandemic has affected you and your operations. Oh, it's it's been enormous, hasn't it? I don't think anybody has been unaffected by it, but um, it's certainly not been time wasted from our perspective. Um, it's, it's given us a lot of time to reassess how we deliver what we do. Um, and being a small company, we've um, been able to adapt fairly quickly to the whole telehealth, explosion in telehealth for our virtual consultations and also classes. Um, uh, I mean, it was devastating staff-wise initially, um, but where we, we, we furloughed who we could. Um, but unfortunately, some of our staff are self-employed, so that was quite tough, not really knowing what support they would have um, at the outset. But um, overall, uh, patients and clients have been really amazingly understanding um, about how our new processes now work, and, and, uh, and we've received some really good feedback. So, um, yeah, it's been <laughs> it's been a journey. It's been a journey. And although, of course, you've sort of aired more towards that remote delivery during the uh, the lockdown period, is there now a clear route forward back to some sort of normality, as it were, or is that still a little bit more complicated? Um, I think it, it, it's definitely um, we are we are already on that journey for sure. Uh, we've got um, more members of staff coming back in. We're reintroducing uh, more services again. Uh, you know, we're sort of keeping our abreast of, of what the uh, what the regulations are, um, and and it's yeah, it is it is uh, it's a learning process for everyone, and, and we're trying to um, stagger that um, that delivery. But you know, we we, we have been you know, everything that we've offered has, has been taken up uh, really really quickly. So it's almost like we can't offer enough quick enough. Um, but we, which is which is really promising. I mean, every, everything does take longer than it used to. There there is. Um, you'll hear anybody in the healthcare sector talking about how much cleaning they have to do, and you know, wearing PPE is, is quite stressful, um, and, and it, you know, it's unpleasant, and especially when it's hot. Uh, but it, it is, um, it is all beginning to open back up again. Um, and and you know, w- w- there's a lot of things though that we've that we've done during lockdown that we'll c- keep doing. You know, the virtual um, consultations will definitely be an option, and certainly uh, clients of ours who are um, in business and, and travel the world for, for their work. If, if that returns for their um, for them, then then we can keep their follow ups on track and help to keep them engaged um, on their rehab plans. Uh, even if they are, you know, in New York for three weeks or whatever, we, you know, we've we've uh, managed. We've found so many useful elements in 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 the virtual consultations um, and the virtual Pilates as well. You know, that, that we've got people on our Pilates classes um, that that don't live um, don't live anywhere near here, so we'll, we'll never meet them face to face. But but we'll we'll keep that going for sure because it's it's proved hugely popular. It's really tested the ability of today's leaders to be 
innovative, adaptable, flexible, hasn't it? And it's testament to your ability to do that, that you've had such success with the remote delivery of uh, your services for sure during this time. And what it sounds like, Sonia, is that you're looking to move more toward a little bit more of a hybrid delivery model going forward and to use that innovation going forward rather than just reverting to how things were before. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if we don't learn from this situation, then, then I'm, I think I think that's uh, that would be devastating. You know, it, this is the way the world is going now, and um, it, it's only accelerated. As so many people said before me, so it, this is just accelerated what is possible um, and what what we could be doing better, um, and and it's just uh, you know brought it all much more into sharp focus. So it, it has, um, it, whilst it has been very stressful uh, for so many people and, and, and we, we have to confess we live in, in in a very resilient little bubble down here in the southwest we have very fairly low population density so our, our numbers on covid have been quite low um but that is no no cause for complacency um you know we we we, uh, we recognize that as holidays open up and as schools start to open up as well that that um that there is there is more chance of, of uh, our exposure down here so you know we kind of feel that we, we were we were very lucky in, in lots of ways to to have to make these adaptations because it was it was a legal uh, requirement but um that we weren't dealing with um huge numbers of, of uh, poorly people i did i myself um did uh sign up for the nhs you know when they they tried to recall patients uh videos and Healthcare workers mm-hmm. back, um, and and I've not I've not um, my service has not been required. You know we we, we really have um, not been hit nearly as hard as, as other parts of the country. So we, we have to be we have to remain internally grateful for that. Um, but yeah, hopefully we, we are prepared in case there is any further wave, um, or if regionally we we um, end up seeing the numbers go a different way. And you mentioned the importance of learning from this experience um, just a little mm. uh, while ago there, as well as, of course, mm. the innovation that you've seen um, at the Pure Practice. Is there anything else notable that you would say that you have learned from this period and can really take away as a positive? Um, I, th- I think not underestimating, you know, everybody really, whether there are clients, uh, whether um, they're, you know, the people that work in the practice as well. Um, you know that everybody has been uh, remarkably positive and and adaptable um, to to the whole process, and and uh, it has uh, um, it, it, the online forums and the chat rooms and the whole community of, of healthcare uh, in the private sector. Is, um, I can only speak for because I've, I've not been involved with the NHS groups, but you know the, the sports therapists, the massage therapists, everybody's been incredibly supportive of each other. Uh, and and uh, that that has been lovely to see. Um, it really has. So sometimes social media goes the other way, and it, it can be a bit dangerous. But uh, yeah, social media has has really been very positive in that sense. And as well as working, of course, in the NHS before you set up the Pure Practice around about four years mm. ago now, um, you have also worked in elite level sport. From a yeah. leadership perspective, are there any sort of techniques or strategies that you maybe took from that experience and have implemented into your leadership style as it were now that you're running your own business um well uh i, I suppose I, le- I left the nhs quite a while ago now but um worked in elite sport um throughout my uh, throughout being qualified um did the nhs sort of as part of that but uh, um it, yeah uh, leadership within sport is uh, there's such a variety, you know, different sports have very different 
um, governing bodies. And so there's a wealth of, of, um, uh, of different styles and, and uh, good and bad <laughs> um, to, to draw on from, from those. Uh, you know, at the moment, certainly in elite sport, there, there's a, it's catastrophic, isn't it? Uh, um, even even right down to um, grassroots. You know, you've got the Olympics that have been postponed for a year, uh, but also parkrun hasn't been on for for, for ages now, or months and months. So, yeah, it's it's um, throughout the whole the whole um, world has, has changed, uh, and, and there's been so many different approaches to that. But it, and so some sports now are opening back up again, but having to uh, manage their sport their, their athletes as safely as possible it's um it's, it's been uh, there's a whole raft of examples to to look to um but i wouldn't say there's one particular that uh, that we've used as a, as a model ourselves in in um in the way that we've done things here Mm-hmm. And during this time, we've seen so many people looking to their sort of business and organisational leaders for inspiration, direction and reassurance critically as and when they do need it. But when you are in a leadership position yourself and there isn't really anybody else to refer to that's above you, where is it that you mm-hmm. tend to draw your own inspiration from? Oh, ah, uh, now, <laughs> I suppose it depends on the day because <laughs> um, every day is different. Uh, and every day this requires a different approach. Uh, whether we're, you know, whether we're patient focused on a particular day, or, or whether it's a day when I'm not having to do that and I'm more business focused. Um, there, there's, there's a myriad of people. You know, you, you can, um, depending on, on what you feel is the right approach for a particular challenge that you're facing, um, there, there, there would be people I find very inspirational. Um, but yes, across all walks of life, um, there's some, some in the media, but predominantly not in the media, to be honest, more, more people who are, who, who, um, people I've known and, and worked with, so have a better understanding of, of the way that they do things. Um, cause I think sometimes it's, uh, difficult to, to know the real, uh, person on when, when it's, uh, somebody who's, who's got a, um, you know, more of a profile. Mm. Uh, so yeah, lots of, taken lots of things from lots of places and try to, try to be as, appropriate as possible in, in each individual situation of course and it's all part of that learning process isn't it being able to learn mm. from other people as well as experience and being able to take the good and the bad elements of leadership and use that to really mold your mm. own style exactly right um having yeah. reflected on that i think it only serves as well that we address what is to come just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program today sonia um we do know that over the course of the next 12 to 18 months we're going to have to adjust to a new way of living and working may well indeed go beyond that depending how long it takes to really sort of shrug off the shackles of COVID-19 for good but over that period of time what is next on the horizon for you and for the pure practice and what do you really hope to achieve? Well we um, obviously hope to keep people as safe as possible and to keep delivering that message uh, that 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 is the focus of what we're doing. Uh, We do see some elderly people here um, and we do see some uh, uh, people who are, are more vulnerable so, so that has got to be the absolute focus. Um, but more collaboration ultimately with our, um, we, we've got a strength and conditioning gym within our practice and we, we provide other services that where practitioners come in. So lots more collaboration and support uh, and more collaboration as well with, with some of the rehab. Uh, we, we'll be offering more and more rehab, but it, it will be in, in, in a smaller group setting rather than the, you know, we, the groups that we were able to um, have in-house before. So um, I think I think it is it is about diversity, um, and that that's going to be the, the the best thing that we can we can sort of work 
to focus on uh, in the next few uh, in the next few months and, and years, really, um, to to make sure that we, we've got as much coverage of um, what we can do for people in in the, in the best environment that we can possibly provide. And let's certainly hope we see those plans beginning to come to fruition over the course of the uh, the next few months, because it is going to be an interesting uh, time of real change. And I think it would actually be wonderful, Sonia, to catch up in the next few months at some point and have you back on the show with us just to see how things are coming along. Oh, that would be that would be great. Yes, thank, thank you. I would I would like that. I certainly would welcome that as well, Sonia. I've really enjoyed having you on the uh, program today with us. It's been a real, real pleasure. And most importantly, oh, no. um, most importantly as well, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on because we're still not quite sure which way the pandemic's ultimately going to go. So let's just keep our fingers crossed. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. And, and to yourself as well. Yeah. And I would also reiterate that message to all tuning in and listening today. Do please continue to be sensible, look after yourselves and others, because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, coming up next on today's programme, we'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, during his professional playing career, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia. He also racked up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Uh, since retiring, Sir Andrew has not only become a champion for mental health, but he has also become the director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board, a post which he retains today. I hope you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew and all of that is of course coming up next. Hello and welcome I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here thank you. The pleasure is all of ours you know and you've had a distinguished career as I said both on and off the pitch in English cricket recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname, ah. it was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. 
And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club Quite. you know and i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top 
bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, you know, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, 
perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem and you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, Okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be all right Mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players focus and interest um and we had to move in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time (laughs) so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew 
what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, and you in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh cancer anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it 
Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those. That would be yeah, so the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... Uh, yeah. A very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there. I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day. What an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um 
I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I I will I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.